let's wait till it starts here. Yeah, the idea of the recording being that, uh, as we've seen such success in Damarato, it just brings more people our way. Um, how did you stumble upon Damarato exactly, Joe? Uh, I was watching an interview uh, with Guru Viking and Daniel Ingram and yeah. Damarato, because like I, I was a big fan of Daniel Ingram, uh, I don't know, maybe like a year ago, and was yeah. just sort of see, yeah, I just was like, oh, I should see this guy actually talk. And then I found him talking with Don Morado and was like, wow. I mean, it, I was much more impressed by Don Morado talking than Daniel Ingram, I have to say. But, you know, sometimes you just connect yeah. or click with different people or whatever. And, yeah. you know, yeah. yeah. Yeah, there is a lot of that. And, and Don Morado has spoken about how within the Sangha, um, you know, folks will hang out with, with various teachers and, quite naturally will gravitate toward one with whom they feel a fit. Yeah. So uh, you found a fit. Yeah. So, I mean, so I, I like the, the positivity of Damarado too, because I find that sometimes with certain personality types, if you lean more towards like, like uh, analytical and just, you know, it, it can be too much, but it's very, very light, like Damarado's yeah. teaching. And, but then, yeah. And it yeah. just, seems to fit my personality type really well so great great now the direction i thought you were going to go in with that joe was was that uh all of this stuff about how us westerners have certain conditioning yeah yeah that too yeah which is kind of a piece of it as well which is precisely what damarato got away from in going to asia right and so he got yeah. a load of the culture as well as the dharma and you know by separating the two yeah uh, which which kind of I, I suppose it was like a real renunciation right of of the western mentality as a whole he just yeah. hung out with the thai folks for the best part of a decade yeah right so washed himself clean so to speak <laughs> and now gets to kind of transmit that right yeah i find that really helped i feel like for a while i've been living in between two worlds where I, I, I ran, I've run a farm for a while. And so oh. you're kind of on your own doing that. And kind of the whole point is that you're not really in society, have time to practice and stuff. But then at the same time, uh, yeah, you're still, you're still dragged back into our culture, you know, just by necessity with like, mm -hmm. yeah, when you meet other people and yeah, so it's it's a strange world and trying to navigate it. And yeah, just talking to him a little bit about that has been really helpful too. Because um, he, yeah, it seems to have a lot of clarity mm -hmm. in navigating that, uh, you know, so. Yeah, yeah, right. Straddling, straddling those two sides, right? Yeah, like yeah. it's very different. Necessarily, the society persists that we have to have an identity with all these numbers and all this uh, these roles. Um, but at the same time, if we, if we still feel we need to participate, right, we have to also agree, okay, yeah, that's true. We have to have that. But then at the same time, we, we, we sense, wait a second, that there's this other shore here. So yeah, we end up straddling both worlds, we end up straddling both sides. And it is quite, quite tricky because, uh, it's sort of this strange, um, dynamic equilibrium 
that, that we feel we, we need to, we don't want to jump off on one side too much of the other, because then we'll lose one of those fears that seems uh, crucial. So, yeah. Right. Right. And it's only when we bring it full circle that we find out there was nothing to be afraid of anyway. No, 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 no. Yeah. But it, I, I, I felt very, very scared by that for, for a long time. The image that I had in, in my head was, was that, uh, like I was stepping off onto some kind of, uh, sea vessel or like a small one, I suppose a raft might be a, a better image or a small rowing boat. And that it was slowly drifting out. I felt as though this small vessel was drifting further away from that original shore. Mm-hmm. And it felt as though at some point I was going to have to choose one or the other. Well, actually, that whole image just dissolved in the end. I was worried about a whole lot of nothing. <laughs> 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 so, yeah, yeah, it, it's it, it's a tough one. I think a lot of folks report that that whole straddling notion mm. at some point. So, great to have you, Joe. Yeah. Had your, your, nice your to meet you guys. With Gamarato <laughs> and, and have found someone who can guide you. Um, yeah, and, and, and as I was saying, the, the idea of uploading these chats is just that people will find them exactly like you did. Yeah. And, uh, and then either come and join in with the group or give Damarato a call and more smiling, happy people. Mm-hmm. <laughs> How was everyone else's week? Anybody want to give an update? Oh, I had a blast for Halloween. Oh, great. <laughs> great. Yeah, it was, yep. it was a fun. It was a fun week for me. Yeah, I mean, it was a bit um, material and social, uh-huh. but it was still, um, you know, is enjoyable. So yeah, I, I had a good good week, and yeah. Yeah, no complaints on that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, Sam, I definitely had a good Halloween weekend. Good, good. Anything specific, Ron? I mean, I just, uh, I went to go uh, visit my friends in college, like in Orlando. So, you know, it was, like Rick said, a very materialistic, very social, but still mm-hmm. very enjoyable. It's kind of like fun, honestly. Just being able to see how everything unfolds and not feeling attachment to anything that's going on at all. Uh, I literally just feel like I'm in a movie watching everything happen. Yeah. There are some crazy things going on. I can't even lie. Because, like, yeah, you know, it's a bunch of, like, drunk college students. Just, yeah, yeah. You know, no adult supervision. Uh-huh. Yeah. Like, it was actually, it was one of the things that, that made my night. So, basically, what happened was... My friends, they live in this like apartment complex uh-huh. and this apartment complex is known for like throwing huge parties for any reason whatsoever. Like everyone in the neighborhood just like joins up and, you know, does whatever. Uh-huh. And uh, so there was this one guy in a Jesus costume, uh-huh. you know, he had the Holy Bible with him and everything. Uh-huh. And he starts walking in the pool and, you know, he gets in like waist deep. And he turns around, puts his arms out, and just falls in backwards. Uh-huh. It was absolutely <laughs> hilarious. Like self-baptism. 
Yeah, literally. <laughs> and then everyone went crazy. People started jumping in the pool. People started throwing chairs in. Whoa. People started blowing fire extinguishers. Like, which which college is this? This was a UCF in Orlando. Oh, okay. Yeah. So did you uh, have some college parties in your history? Uh, yeah, I mean, a long time ago. I mean, I'm 33 now, so. I went to Michigan State, uh, and that's known as a party school. So yeah, so that sounds, you know how that it sounds is. familiar. <laughs> right, right. I feel like it doesn't matter what time it is, where it is. The, the concept is all the same. It's just people meeting up together, getting drunk, whatever. It's, there's just different concepts and structures around it, but it's all the same at the end of the day. It seems as though that that whole party mentality, because it's present here in the UK as well, and I imagine many other places as well, it seems, seems likely that it's about shaking off the shackles of childhood, right? Doing all the shit your parents told you you can't do behaving as badly as possible well yes and no i feel like at the end of the day you know people will always look for some type of escape just to escape the the void you know right you know things to to help them forget about the, yeah. the emptiness and you know growing up everyone sees you know whether it's in cartoons or in real life they see people drinking smoking this that they get introduced to it at some aspect in their lives. And, you know, at first it always starts out as a social thing. You know, you, you started to, to meet the, the social requirements of your friend group, this, that, and then before you know it, you're, it's just normal. Yeah. Yeah. Because the way I see it, it doesn't matter like what labels you put over it. People getting like, drunk together it's just it's a pastime it's it's what people do certainly culturally there's a lot of momentum yeah right yeah how many hundreds of years have people been getting drunk for i suppose for as long as they had access to alcohol exactly and like i don't see it as an individual thing i see it as a group thing like sure some people take it to the extremes they become alcoholics you know mm. they drink every day but Mm. a lot of people it's just the group mentality you know everyone here everyone is drinking everyone is having a good time mm -hmm. i should do the same thing i'll drink i'll have a good time mm -hmm. the strange the strange thing that i that i can see now that i'm a little bit older is like on a like sort of zoomed out scale though you can sort of see how it becomes well this this is what you do in this phase of your life and all right, you have these like four years of freedom here, but then back to seriousness when you're 22. And I saw so many people that um, had this sort of free, liberated spirit that uh, talked of things in that age group. And then it's kind of disappointing now that I'm this age and I'm like, wait, wait a minute. So you still went with the program, even though you you like, you know, you had all these conversations and stuff and, uh, you know, uh, for me, it was a way of kind of waking up to like the story of society is not really what they're telling you. But oh, for other yeah. people, it seemed to be just a 
a shift and like, all right, we'll accommodate that you need a little bit of freedom for these four years because, but then we'll just put the like shackles back on you a little bit. But, you know, I used to I think that, oh, sorry. Go ahead. Yeah, go ahead. Nah, I just, I used to think that, you know, anyone who would partake in these type of stuff, anyone who would drink or do drugs that, that they were sad or depressed or trying to escape from something, you know? And I feel like that kind of gives people who don't do it some sense of superiority, thinking that that can be the, the only option, the only interpretation of how things are. But, you know, really being in that environment and being able to observe how these people act and react to things, you know, it makes me realize it's, it's just what they want to do, you know, in the same way how we want to be in this video call right now. So we're here. They just, they want to go out. They want to get drunk. They want to, you know, screw somebody. It's just them living life because at the end of the day, like, like once you get to the end point, you know that that makes you no different from anyone else. It makes you exactly the same as everyone and everything. And, you know, some people, they, they get lucky enough, they meet the right people or they click the right links on YouTube and they go down this path. But everyone else, they just live life normally. They find the things that bring them pleasure and enjoyment and they pursue those yeah yeah and any differences that we could call out are fabricated anyway yeah exactly like who's to say that you know you you reach the you reach the fourth path fully awake you know you could just go do that anyway because it doesn't matter at the end of the well, day i i like the idea that the hardware doesn't change. Of course. You know, awakening is not a lobotomy, right? So you, you still have the potential to do all the things that yeah. anyone else like the content, The context changes, but the content doesn't. Um, hmm. Context changes, but the content doesn't. Well, the content could change moment to moment. Today, I suppose the content is always changing. I think. What was that? You, you, just you cut, cut out. out a little there, Dan. Yeah, I think I think what you mean, Ron, is is basically that you can still go to a party, right? That that yeah, that, exactly. choice, that choice is always available. Like it's like the way I see it is this this path. It's not it's not a way of life. It's not you know if you want to see things a certain way, you have to abide by the rules and guidelines. It's literally just it's a perspective and. You know, once you're at the level where you see things like that with no uh, assumption, no differentiation, that unaltered form of consciousness, there's, you know, there's no going back. You can do whatever you decide to do with your life exactly as you would have done before, but the scene is still yeah. the same. Yeah. Because indeed, Freedom must include the option to go to a party if one wants to go to a party. Yeah, exactly. Right? Now, the, the question, I suppose, is why would one go to a party? But it might be out of sheer curiosity. I mean, there's so many different reasons. Yeah. The one reason that we would expect not to show up is the reason I need to. Yeah. Right? I feel no, like shit, 
partying will sort me out. Partying will make me feel good. That's, yeah, that is. And that, that is indeed a change of perspective. Yeah. Right. So exactly as you said. Uh, hey, Christopher. Hello. How are you? Christopher. Hi. Hey, Christopher. Hi. I'm Ron. Yes, we have Ron here, and I think, Joe, you've probably not met before either, Christopher. No. <laughs> you met Rick, I think. I have, yeah. Mm. Last time. I don't think I met Rick. Rick. No. Hi there. Okay. Debbie's sat here looking very interested. Hello. As well, this is my wife, Debbie. Jo. Hi. Hi, hi, Debbie. You guys are talking about something very interesting: alcohol, socialization, and um, what else? What was there? Pain. Pain was probably in the mix somewhere. Yeah. Yes. Um. So what? I've been working at a rehab unit, and although I a lot of information but I saw some people actually go to alcohol because they want stimulation it's not just pain because mm. they don't know how to pleasure themselves any um, in any other way for uh, and that kind of matches with what Ron was saying you know the same reason that we find ourselves in this conversation is probably because the kind of mental stimulation that we prefer is through these deep explorations and conversations. Mm -hmm. Whereas people who have not got that opportunity are more likely to go for that quick fix. Or it could be that's the only thing they want. Well, the, the, the quick fixes are what's presented to us as really the only option from yeah, a the very social young model, age, right? Yeah. I mean, it starts at cartoons, sweets, mm -hmm. uh, play, or, you know, play is kind of different, right? But um, certainly, when it comes to those instant gratification type stimuli. Yeah. Right? No, exactly. Because okay. I've been, Before, I can definitely attest, like I've been exposed to all that stuff from a young age. You know, I always knew what it was. And, you know, if it wasn't for the fact that I, like something deep inside me, wanted to go see what else life had to offer, wanted to understand more deeply, I would have been just like everyone else, you know, getting drunk every single day doing whatever just normal person and like don't get me wrong I'll, I'll still indulge because at the end of the day i am no different from anyone else but you know i guess it's just the the difference in perspective i come at it from a from a perspective where i was i attended bar for about three or four years so i was on the opposite side actually handing people these libations you know for whatever reason they had you know and uh, I was trying to be cognizant because of the liability as far as giving people too much right yeah they couldn't stop themselves you know judgments lowered and you know I wasn't just concerned with you know legal ramifications I also didn't want them to get poisoned from this uh, from you know you know overindulging and uh, toxic toxic <laughs> nature intoxicated as it were but um a lot of responsibility to put on a, a server you know what i mean mm -hmm. yeah 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 and it did definitely yeah like as i said it was an interesting position to be in but it also gave me 
a different, I guess, a different perspective. Or no, there were a lot of bartenders who drank. I know I didn't. When I was bartending, I didn't drink. And I think it was because of what I saw of it. And of course, managers love that because they knew I was never going to steal anything. Uh. <laughs> I wasn't sneaking anything behind the bar because I stayed pretty dry. But again, it, it gave me um, an interesting perspective on what it was and why people did it. Uh, and probably thinking back, I may have uh, overgeneralized. You know, I wasn't quite as. Um, yeah, I, I didn't have the experience that I do now to understand it uh, in more facets, in a multifaceted manner. Uh, but it certainly was enough to keep me keep me away from it uh, personally. So yeah. Well, suppose the the bartender is always there till the bitter end, right? Yeah, and it was bitter. There were there were yeah. only two p.m., three a.m., two a.m., three a.m. nights and. Yeah, it was, a, it was definitely a lifestyle. Yeah. So folks who need to be picked up off the floor at the end of the night. <laughs> yeah. See it, right? And so you, you see that whole journey throughout the evening, right? Everyone arriving looking very civilized and then <laughs> cut to. Right. And you know that if you take a, if you take a step in that path, there's a, there could be a chance for you to follow in the same direction. And you go, I don't know if that's really... For me, it's paying the bills, but I don't know that I want to do anything else. So, yeah. Lots of people who have worked bars and certainly landlords, landladies, who have ended up alcoholics because it's the environment in which they find themselves every day, every night. Certainly the, the landlords and, and landladies, you know, the publicans, they're, often they live on the premises, right? And that's seven-day-a-week job then in which the business is the buying and selling of alcohol so it's a, really a bit high. of a trap yeah. yeah and and as most of you guys know i've been a musician for, for my entire working life really and though i've taught more than i've formed i've known lots of performers who have fallen prey to alcoholism as well because that's their environment the same thing way it seems more of a disadvantage the the landlady because on stage it's your job to look like you're having a good time but what happens a lot of the time is the audience wants to buy you drinks because they want to be having that good time with you and um yeah i've known i've known friends who have felt uh, very much swept away on the momentum of constant party. And the real danger I've seen has been that it's very easy, it seems, for people in that situation to call their use recreational. Mm -hmm. Right? Yeah, it's a safe category, isn't it? Yeah. It's a safe, it's a safe category and it it also uh, rebounds any kind of reflection on it either. Mm -hmm. You know, it's like you, you're able to keep that at bay. It could be multiple reasons or it could be an underlying reason. But if once you call it into the recreational category because it is so socially accepted, then it becomes beyond criticism. Like, oh, of course, yeah, me too, me too. Yeah. Yeah. 
Yeah, and there's something kind of romanticized about the um, alcoholic musician or the <laughs> drug using musician, you know? It's a, it's a trope. It's a trope. It is yeah. Funny. It's a total trope. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> trope them up. Yeah. 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 Uh, what, did, what did the Buddha say about drinking alcohol? Anyway? My memory on this is foggy. <laughs> well, I do know that, that the Buddha kind of starved himself and deprived himself of all basic necessities, thinking that if he tired the body and the mind out, the truth would be revealed to him. He starved himself for months, and you know, after he reached a peak point where he suddenly saw clearly the first thing he said, he looked around at all of his disciples and he said, what are you guys waiting for? Let's eat. So, well, yeah, food, but food and alcohol are two different things. One is a known toxin, and the, uh, the other one is something that you need to live. Yeah, so, I know, but it's, it's, I think it's well, more of the, the concept behind the matter. You know, he was depriving himself of all these things, thinking that it would get him somewhere. And once he was finally there, he realized it had nothing to do with that. Yeah, now the, the gist is the same, but I've heard that story told somewhat differently and i'm struggling to remember whether it was damarato who told it to me this way but my go-to for that story whether right or wrong has been that actually uh the buddha became so weak having mm. fasted that he actually fell into a, a ditch and almost died and then coming out of that ditch having had that close call he thought to himself this is crazy I'm not going to get enlightened if I'm dead. And that's when he started eating again. So again, like same gist, but that's, that's how I recall that story. Uh, maybe we could look it up. Um, I think that there's also, there's a, like a young girl in the story that comes and gives him a, an offering and he had been like denying uh, food for a while and then somebody came with a, a bowl of a certain type of rice, I can't remember what kind, uh -huh. uh, but yeah he grabs onto like a root Probably like on the rice. side of the ditch and like pulls himself up and then is offered like a bowl to eat uh, of food, yeah. Okay. Uh -huh. Uncle Uncle Ben's. It was Uncle Ben's. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> Didn't take long to prepare. <laughs> yeah, microwaved, probably. All <laughs> <laughs> oh, that technology. Um, regarding alcohol specifically, does anyone have any clear recollection of what's said in the suttas? Well, I mean, in the Vinaya, in the Vinaya, it's obviously banned for like monks and and yeah. nuns. That's written, you know. Uh, but uh, I don't know specifically. Uh, I, I know he he said it specifically about gambling, but I don't know about drinking. This just came up on Google for me. I don't know if it's legit or not because I'm not. I don't know. I had to double check these kind of things. But it's, it's interesting, like looking in modern times, I think, because, you know, you have on one hand, like the Tibetans who are very much, you know, like all about, uh, yeah, participating in these things. And there's, you know, been many cases of like uh, Chagyam Trungpa is like, you know, 
the drunken monk kind of, you know, and then on the other end, I mean, it's very uh, not like that in the Theravada tradition. And, you know, um, so, yeah, I don't know. Yeah, let's yeah. check out this. Let's check out what you what you posted here, Christopher. It says the Buddha therefore included the downside of intoxication in a Duelwa Sutra, if I'm pronouncing that correctly. One is to refrain, the Buddha says, from drinking even a drop of alcohol and taking intoxicants because they are the cause of heedlessness. If any Buddhists succumb to the lure of intoxicating drinks, they shall not consider me as a teacher. Pretty strong words. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know if that's legit or not, but that was the first entry that came up in uh, Google. So, right. <laughs> well, let's just we can look at it just in terms of the hindrances. You know, like how well, how easy is it to slip into one or more of the hindrances once, once, uh, once taken an intoxicant. Indeed. Yeah. Because I of the. I think it makes sense with alcohol. It definitely interferes with judgment and all of that deliberate processing. That's very and observation. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, yes. Unless you have somebody there to protect you from stupidity, <laughs> which, which usually I, you I, need I, if you're I, drinking. Beer is like pretty heavy, and I, I did that. I was a bartender. Did I mention? Yeah, the right bartender. <laughs> like I've seen so many people make stupid decisions this weekend. Like, yeah it was beyond me yeah yeah yeah, yeah. it was it was beyond them <laughs> <laughs> well, clearly it wasn't <laughs> yeah. inhibitions are removed too with alcohol i mean it, it's yeah. uh yeah that's a big reason people drink it because that some people are too inhibited and so that they need to drink to feel like they can loosen yeah. up and then it becomes a crutch mm. Yeah, that's there. a real that's a real problem like for me i i it took me a lot of years after i stopped drinking of being comfortable in social situations because right. i i almost didn't know what to do because i realized so often i just relied on that and but and i was like wow i, I actually have to like relearn how to do this you know uh, yeah that's very brave many people would just go back to alcohol again because yeah. you can't process that and they may be overwhelmed with all of that new learning that they have to do. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, that's very great. Yeah. Mm -hmm. A social lubricant, no doubt. It works that way. Oh, yeah, for sure. Mm -hmm. That's one thing without a doubt. You know, once you drink in your system, you're suddenly a lot more loose, able to talk to people way more easily. And I think that's another big reason why a lot of people do it. Yeah. You get a little bit of an endorphin rush. Yeah. Yep. Yeah, but I say to you on the phone, Ron, uh, we were talking about substances in their various forms, and I recounted one of my earlier experiences with MDMA. After which I hypothesized, could I be this happy and free and uh, easeful with people without the substance? And that was a major uh catalyst to my practice and that was a major kind of uh, working hypothesis that i took with me into beginning a practice so it's interesting how you know we can we can uh find that the mixed bag is present even in amphetamines mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah 
psychedelics as well. Yeah, psychedelics too. Yeah, lots of people find that psychedelics brings them to the path. I mean, that's what happened for me. Yeah. Without a doubt. Yeah, yeah. So, by feeling in general from conversations with Damarato and reading and listening and all of my experiences is that actually explicit statements like that from the Buddha um, seem kind of rare. I was actually pretty radical with with the the level of explicitness in in that statement that you posted, Christopher, and maybe Damarato would be able to uh, pinpoint that one. Yeah, maybe you can confirm it. That's uh, actually something I wanted to ask him about too. So I'm glad this is a topic today. Yeah, but I think I think that overall, what we can say is that what's important is attachment, and that if an explicit instruction is given, it's likely given to some collection of people, or perhaps even one person at a specific time to serve a specific purpose. So that if one can enjoy a drink without experiencing hindrance, what do we say then? If one can experience a drink without experiencing attachment, what do we say then? Is it bad? End of story. Are bad things going to happen? Well, no, I feel like at that point it just is. Yeah, well, it seems it, it seems naive, doesn't it? It seems... Uh, Right, it seems like, too too cut and dry. Too cut and to dry. Say. And yeah. then we're putting we're putting uh, a value judgment on a substance that doesn't yeah. necessarily have an inherent good or bad right. at all. We know that to be a false a false category. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Right. And we also know that rights, rules and rituals are the first thing to go in the practitioner's mind. So I suppose that's really the reason why it always surprises me to hear the Buddha speaking explicitly. Makes me think more likely that he was addressing a person or persons in a specific moment to give a specific teaching. For example, um, if we were to address a room full of people who had struggled with alcohol, we might speak strongly against alcohol because we can see that it's just not going to help the people that we're speaking to and that perhaps they could do with a rule to follow at that point. But then that who knows how that's going to develop and indeed zooming out, 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 out to Duca Duca Niroda, well, eventually we can make our own minds up. Noticed with... Uh... I don't. How do you pronounce his name? Buddha Buddha Hasa or Buddha Das? Yeah. Uh, Buddha Dasa. So yeah, he in uh, mind mindfulness uh, book that uh, they printed of one of his talks. I think he talks about that, like depending on the audience. So if this person is really introverted or whatever, he would have him do certain things opposite of that. Or if this person's really outgoing, he'd have him like be completely alone or whatever. And so depending on particular circumstance they would adjust based on that right 
And what you're saying is basically the Buddha did the same thing. I, I haven't read a lot of the Buddha yet, so I'm working on it a little bit. <laughs> but is that is that basically what what you're saying? Is that he yeah. taught the right way? Yeah, and that's the great advantage that we have in being in touch with Dhammarato is that the Buddha Dasa precisely contextualized the whole of the Pali Canon. He did all of it. He did all that reading. Perhaps so we wouldn't have to. I'm not sure. I imagine there'd still be great benefit in reading the entire Pali Canon, but I certainly don't see myself doing it anytime soon. And then Damarato, of course, brings it even closer to us. Um, and, and that indeed was the, the gist of it, Christopher, was, yeah, a little to the left, a little to the right, which, mm -hmm. is, which is from a favorite story of mine. Did I share this one recently? A little to the left, a little to the right? No, it's it sounding no. familiar. So it's, I think it's a Zen story that, that someone's uh, visiting a monastery and uh, sees the master giving teachings and um, finds that the master is contradicting himself. And so the, I actually read about that once. You read this one, did you, Ron? Yeah, it's a favorite. Of I mine. think so. Are you talking about the story with the dog? No. No dog in this one, although I'm sure Debbie would love for a dog to make a cameo. Yeah. Uh, Just add one. So the visitor, with his dog, approaches the master and, uh, and says to the master, you're no good. I, I've come here from miles away to, to come and see you teach, and you're telling this guy one thing and this guy another thing. Make up your mind. And the master says, well, this person approaches me needing one thing and I tell him he's he, he says he's too far to the right so I tell him a little to the left and then the next student approaches and he's too far to the left so I tell him a little to the right and so that I, I I struggle to imagine the great Buddha not being aware of that wise teaching technique yeah yeah I mean he does it throughout the sutras a ton I mean he he has definitely different disciples that he talks to in different ways there's certain teachings that they even go against themselves and then it causes problems with scholars and they sit around and are like wait he taught two different things and like okay but it's a totally different context but yeah i think, I mean, I think yeah. the only way this these teachings could be better interpreted if a population was mentioned who were who these um questions were have that I think sometimes we don't and we'll know various amounts about that audience based on the information I you feel like the, the biggest problem with that is you really can't like generalize information like this yeah like if it was a if it was a one-size-fits-all type of thing you know everyone would be enlightened right mm -hmm. and there wouldn't be any there wouldn't be any debate within the schools either yeah. right yeah. right yeah. There, there would just be it would be Buddhism. It wouldn't be, right. you know, twenty be different, different arguing, squabbling. Mm -hmm. uh, you yeah. know, from a, from a teacher's perspective, I think, uh, and this is this is much more simplistic than what we're talking about. But just as a an example, let's say that uh, there's a student that um, I need to express like a grammatical rule to, right? And they're sort of at a basic level. Um, and so in order to not confuse them, I'm going to give them a more simplistic rule about about something. Right. 
um, you know, past simple past tense or whatever. Now for the, the intermediate or advanced student, I'm going to have to take that rule away because there's going to be a lot of situations where it no longer applies, but they are at a point where they can handle that, um, that extra understanding. They're at a deeper level of understanding. And so then, uh, you know, if someone's looking from the outside, it would almost seem as if I'm contradicting myself, but I'm not. I'm, I'm adjusting my uh, strategy or my message uh, based on what it is this person, uh, this person needs at this time, right? And, you know, you know I don't want to overwhelm the, you know, the, the novice uh, English language learner with too much of this grammar because they'll just, it's just going to confound them and maybe even scare them off. But then I can't go back into the person to say, well, you know, like it's in a way to say, well, once you get to a certain level of language, you could say the same thing in five different ways and all of them are correct. It's your style. But to a beginner, I'm saying this is the way you say it, right? I don't want you to start thinking there's umpteen million ways because you're going to end up accidentally crossing one of those grammar rules. So that's what I'm what I mean. And so I'm trying to apply it to this situation here in a in an overly simplistic way, maybe. Perfect. Perfect. Yeah, I'm, I'm really glad you, you brought that up because, you know, that's a that's something that I actually wonder, you know, if it is possible that there is some type of universal practice or something that can be done to, to everyone all the same to incite some levels of awakening because I actually I actually read something about that in uh, one of Shinzen Young's books. Mm. Uh, he was talking about the next Buddha. That it would be called like Saitreya or something like that. I'm I'm not sure if I'm right with the name, but you know he started talking about all these uh, different neuroscientists like himself and Daniel Ingram and you know I've I've heard somewhere else that awakening it's it's a very visceral thing. It's very physical. It's all happening within the body. So it just makes me wonder like if you can understand how it works on a neurological level maybe is there some way that you know you would be able to incite this on a mass level because at the end of the day you know in the times of the buddha all these other amazing teachers they had the knowledge but they didn't have the technology to be able to you know graph it down in ways that everyone could understand universally or write it down in a way that could be understood by someone who doesn't necessarily understand the the practice itself i struggle to imagine anything written ever being universally understood there's too much interpretation well not in a matter of words but more in a matter of like an equation okay mm -hmm. you know if it's something that you can calculate right um, because yeah, uh, I wouldn't say an equation, but the recent neuroimaging studies indicate that the circuit, which is responsible for deliberate processing, uh, typically associated with the more frontal lobes, uh, you know, like decision making, judgment, reasoning, and all of those um, cognitive skills, it's it's remarkable that when people meditate those centers light up and what's 
even more crazy is when people take mushrooms and they're experiencing that high the same centers tend to light up hmm. so yeah it's it's very uh, weird because and i think it can be explained in a simple way because when we are imagine when we are solving a problem say a maths equation or something the kind of processing that we use is very task focused so the the attention process and everything has it's not as much related to yourself as it is to the task in at hand but when we are thinking about ourselves or talking to our beloved or whatever the kind of processing we use is very different and it has a more emotional tone to it so the in that way you could say that the executive function or the frontal cognitions could be the basis of awakening Mm. That could be a thing. <laughs> yeah, and and the whole thing that we're talking about here is just utterly fascinating. The yeah. fact that that measuring brain activity is even possible mm-hmm. is so bizarre. Yeah, because I, I would really like to wonder, you know, be able to see a brain scan of a normal person and compare it to a brain scan of someone who's enlightened, you know, and see if there's actually any difference on a neurological level if the brain itself is firing off in a different way or i think they've i think they've done that yeah this yeah. has been done yeah yeah so structurally there is little difference there's not massive difference in structure and the enlightened person doesn't doesn't possess any other circuit or they are not activating any um hidden part of the brain as such but the the way they are processing the network that they are um involving while processing information is very much a depersonalized um rational and aware it's it's very aware uh, it has the element of being aware mindful that's why all of those factors make them um at least behaviorally behaviorally look like an enlightened being and and yeah i think a huge part of what we're seeing happen in our generation of practitioners and i think we're going to continue to see happen is the bringing down of enlightenment from the pedestal mm-hmm. and it's um retaking its rightful place as something completely ordinary yeah i can't um, wait till it becomes a high school prerequisite <laughs> <laughs> Well, well, indeed. I mean, high schools might start to look a little bit crazy because it's it's actually there's there's this massive flip that that has to occur, which is that currently we see enlightenment as extra, as the special thing. The special thing is delusion. Mm-hmm. That's the extra. Right, it's the stuff on top. It's like um, these crazy muddy layers on the top of things, not something to cut through to get externally. Yeah, it's muddy layers. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, I think the main problem is, you know, as many people as you know that have gotten there, it's still purely speculation at this point. There is no solid evidence that something like this actually exists. You know, as much as your personal and direct experiences may, you know, 
prove that to you, you're unable to prove that to someone else. You know, they're unable to see things from your perspective. So yeah. you can say, you know, my, my experience has no center. Uh, my body feels like infinity, this, that. But at the end of the day, you know, they're kind of just looking at you like you're a crazy person. Well, yeah, and I'm yeah, and I'm not sure how helpful those grand descriptions of one's direct experience are. I mean, to describe using words like infinity and and uh, it it in my experience that that stuff is just going to generate desire. Confusion. Yeah, confusion. I mean, you know, I just I just use those words for example. Sure. But, you know, but, but I mean, like, we do come across them, though, right? There are those descriptions. Oh, yeah, of course. Yeah, right, of, of what happens following a lot of practice. And so, of course, the, whoever's reading that description or hearing it is immediately going to start conceptualizing, well, what's that like? I kind of want it. Okay, what do I have to get it? And here we go again. That's right, back right into the cycle of grasping and wanting you could say um, that's kind of like a student of Rick's trying to understand um, uh, this certain nuance of a grammar rule before understanding a grammar rule, like the basic grammar rule. Like, right. um, yeah, when they press me about it and I look at them and say, you know, the explanation would just be more confusing than just learning the rule and following it for now. Right. Please just, just, just trust me. That it's gonna that you know you'll get to a point where you know this won't matter as much, but for now, please just follow it. It's gonna be less confusing. Yeah. Right. Right. And and back to that wonderful image and, and the Buddha. Imagine if we were to take Rick all of your teaching from the entirety of your career, but not just write it down now. We're gonna write it down over a period of how long? A few hundred years. Not one that various teachings will be written <laughs> down by various people yeah. and then we're going to take it all as gospel right because it's going to be compiled voted on bound interpreted reinterpreted yeah people writing about writing about it yeah oh and translated right yes exactly Again. yeah yeah and then and then a load of folks even further down the line are going to start picking out contradictions in your teaching. <laughs> I didn't even say it. I didn't even say it. <laughs> Never even said that. <laughs> yeah. So that, that's, an interesting, that's an interesting context, isn't it? Welcome, Ryan. We're just talking about how uh, the Buddha's teachings were written down, all 84,000 of them given to different people at different times and uh, written down at various times during his life and or after his death and then translated and translated again and interpreted and interpreted again. It's like having a puzzle. All the pieces were made at different times by different companies with different shades and different colors and everyone's like, okay, now put it together. Yeah. It's like, what? <laughs> Right. And, and so then we, we come back to the, the great service that Bhikkhu Buddha Dasa has done for us and, and through Dhammarato and him kind of bringing it to us Westerners in terms that we can understand. Um, that 
that context is just so important. Mm -hmm. But at so. least, you know, one like one advantage of this, though, is at least that there's multiple sources and multiple places that it's coming from that you can compare. Yeah, you know, because like in Christianity, the real difficulty is that there's just there literally is one. There's one book and that's it. You know, right. you have nothing else to go on. And at least yeah. you have like a few sources to compare. They're written at different times in history and in different places. And, you know, there can be a little bit of that. And that that I I don't know, I, I find that a little bit more comforting Mm -hmm. Just in my own practice, that like, okay, this these seems this seems to be a really good one because it's written in so many different places, basically the same thing. I mean, when you start reading the polycanon, like you like, you just see that it's just it's just the same thing a lot of times. You know, like a lot of them is you're like, oh wait, I've I've read this one before. You know, um, <laughs> it's a good one. Uh, <laughs> I'll bookmark this one. <laughs> <laughs> Would have said he taught only one thing. Duca Duca Naroda. Yeah. 84,000 times. <laughs> At least. Just packaged it differently. Yeah. Yeah, as you would when teaching anything, right? As you've yeah. just taken us through, Rick. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, that's right. And yeah, even I even have slightly different methods for different cultures. It's yeah. hard to articulate that, mm. but teaching the folks in South Korea. I approach English, and their needs are different than someone from, let's say, uh, a refugee from Syria, you know, right. and their needs being different. Is it the same language? Absolutely. Is it the same basic information? Sure. But do I have to package differently? Absolutely. Because I have to re meet them what, where they are and what their needs are, because yeah. I do have such contact with so many different types of people. Yeah. 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 Lovely. Welcome, Ryan. Yeah, welcome, Ryan. Good to see you again. Hi hey there, Ryan. Your microphone is off, brother. Good to see you. Good to see you. Brilliant hey. to be here. Yeah. There he is. <laughs> Ryan, I'm aware that I still haven't gotten back to you. I wonder if you might like to share your idea with the group or if you'd rather save that for another time. No, I'm happy to share it with the group, yeah. So, I'm writing a self-help book for National November Writing Month. We should all write books for National November Everybody gone still? Oops, that's good timing. Okay, okay. I'm going to have to hang up and come back in again. Yeah. Yes, I, I actually like that. We, we should all write a book. Why not? Christopher, was that something from you? I think your microphone's kind of quiet. You're, um... Yeah, can you hear me now? Yeah. Yeah. I, on you, what you were saying, Ron, about, uh, you know, I, that's one of the big issues with psychology and everything else is that, you know, it's subjective experience, so there's not really any real good way to measure any of that stuff. That's what I like about Buddhism, though, is that from my understanding, the Buddha says for you to experience it yourself, and that way you don't have to take anybody's word for it. Yeah, I agree, but you see, the, the thing with me is, you know, after stumbling onto the path, I've had experiences, you know, I'm just going to use the word experience for now, experiences that I could have 
never imagined previously. And I've gotten to levels where I perceive my own reality in such a way that, you know, I wouldn't want anything else than for everyone else to experience what I am. Because, you know, when you find this, something like this within yourself, this, this level of, uh, you know, unconditional joy and happiness, you know, why wouldn't you want to share it with all the people that you care about? Do you see the problem with that is, you know, as much as you might want to share it, you know, from their perspective, you know, it kind of just seems like a bunch of bogus, you know, well, unless they actually want to learn about it. Yeah. They never will. We, we had this conversation a couple of weeks ago. What was that? Sorry, Christopher. I would say there's a difference between sharing the joy that you have and trying to teach it because they're two different things. So if you have joy and you're sharing with people, most people are going to be okay with that. No, of course. But, you know, with the teaching, like, you know, this is something that I personally, I think everyone would be better off knowing. So. You know, whenever I'm in social situations or just talking to friends, I, I tend to bring it up in one way or another, you know, hoping to teach. And, you know, there are some people who are more than happy to listen. They understand the wisdom within what I'm saying. And there are other people who kind of just write it off as, you know, nothing special, never to be thought of again. And in those cases, I think you'll be um, you'll benefit from remembering what Rick said that at certain for some people when they're <laughs> when they're processing information in a certain way, everything need not be revealed to them right away. You should hold some of your information back. And only if they seem like they are able to digest all of these things, then only you can go forward. You know, and that's back to observing the situation carefully as well. You know, it's, uh, you know, and, you know, looking at it from the wanting perspective again, you say, oh, I want to give them this thing that I've been feeling, et cetera, et cetera. And although, yeah, there's a part of like, I can appreciate the altruism in that at the same time by, um, by, by pushing into that, what, what could be a wall, a social wall, mm-hmm. um, you know, it's it, it could come across as a, a spiritual Amway. <laughs> spiritual wall? I'm not sure I'm familiar with that word. A, tra- a train. <laughs> An Amway. No, no, no. Multi-level marketing. Multi-level marketing. Like a pyramid scheme. Like a... Like a like oh it's our it's our it's our Buddhist friend oh here he comes okay <laughs> just don't look at him don't look you know and, you know and yeah yeah so uh, I think we've all been there definitely <laughs> you know I mean it, it it comes down to yeah to, to, and and I'm I, I don't mean to keep bringing this up but I'm gonna go back to Aikido for a second because I I practice this art forever um, and a day um, knowing the appropriate response. Yeah in the moment and being like observant enough to know what that response is or to know what that, um, you know, what that situation calls for. And, you know, and sometimes it just calls for you just to be silent and happy, enjoying the moment where, where you are 
rather than trying to, hey, let me tell you about this stuff. <laughs> let me get you hooked on this stuff. This meditation okay, stuff. You, you want to weigh out the pros and cons. Are you yeah. causing more harm to the person than good? Are they going to be really put off and potentially close off any of their chances to, you know, become fond of these kind of teachings and philosophical exploration and all of that in future? So, yeah, those are yeah. the things you need to keep in mind. No, I think, Ron, you're aware of this stuff. Sure. Oh, of course. It's just it's just one of those things. It's good to have no, a it's just It's nice to hear from an outside perspective, honestly. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, I yeah, I love this whole conversation because um, it's it's so important. I think I think maybe what you're at then afterward ron perhaps is okay so so what then how do we get the dharma to more people okay i'm gonna be patient i'm gonna i got my shiny gold coin in my pocket and i'm gonna keep it there now what right is that question around more or less yeah sounds appropriate you're, you're, you're the treasure you're the, not you you but you're the treasure and I guess the way I see myself, even as a, as a teacher, is I think of myself as a reference book, right? And if the student knows the right questions to ask, man, I will give them some really great information. But if they don't, if they're not thirsty, if they're not seeking, I don't even go, I don't even open those chapters. I just don't. So I, I allow that uh, and maybe subtly draw it. But for the most part, I remain a passive kind of passive guide guidebook or reference book and whatever arises uh arises like that you know mm -hmm. i don't know go ahead go ahead ryan i have a slightly different take on things as usual <laughs> is uh, <laughs> i feel that maybe i'll give you my personal experience right now what i'm going through is I'm thinking again, like there's this National November Writing Month where you have to write, it's a challenge in the month of November where you write 50,000 words and break it down to around 1,657 words a day. So I've, I've also started doing some magical work connecting with the Holy Guardian Angel and I think I've gotten a good connection with him and he comes into you and he drives you to do what you're most supposed to be doing in your life. And I've also got, I think I'm possessed by the spirit of Shiva now coming into me and driving me. And I find that really these things about sharing the information that you have with other people sometimes gets taken out of your hand. And now I'm feeling driven that I have to do this. This is my journey. So the book that I'm writing is on and uh, is, is on the way of the of the open hand mm. so from being from the closed fist grasping clinging attachment wanting etc which is how i've been like get the six pack be the best person in the room or whatever no this is this go 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 when actually the answer is to is to surrender and be with the open hand i, I practice that one too <laughs> yeah, right. I might actually have to join you on this National November Writing Month. It started yesterday, but you still can, yeah. Yeah, no, I mean, I've I've tried writing a book or two before. I feel like I've always had some good ideas. 
Yeah, I've definitely want to write, wanted to write about similar concepts as well. I just feel like my biggest problem was I always told myself I didn't know enough. Mm. Mm. Yeah. See, what happens with this thing, no, is the message is inside you. And that's, that's my take on it. And you really don't have a choice on what you're going to say or how you're going to say it. If, if it's done the right way, because all that we're doing that we're discussing over here also is how we get the ego out and we let the Tao or whatever's inside us just be. Awareness just be. And if I feel if you just start the writing, you'll find it go in different ways. It, it opens up the fractals of creation, successive fractals of creation. And uh, so you open one door that opens another three, four doors, and, and suddenly you find yourself in a completely different place. But the, all you had to do was start. And I think that's what happened to me. Once I started and I had this thing, I thought, let me write about everything. Mm. And then about all the advice and then sell it as an, uh, a book to my 18-year-old self. Mm. But then as I was reading books, they were saying, no, no, you shouldn't write about everything to everybody because then you won't get anybody and make it a niche. So then yeah. I thought that this is my personal journey where I've been searching and looking and craving and getting frustrated and self-flagellating and beating myself up. And then the answer that I got is the answer that all of you guys have already gotten also, which is just let go and just be and let the flow happen through you. And and so that and once that's happening, I'm getting that this is this thing. And the book's name came up to me, The Way of the Open Hand. And uh, yeah, I wrote the first little bit yesterday. Mm. And, and and it's it's nice. The flow is there. It's about I spoke about Wu Wei, and then these were the lessons I learned. Wu Wei was working well for me until I thought, no, let me have some structure in it and have some systems. And then that went, and then I. Then I lost everything, and then about yeah. So basically, I, I mean, I send you the book. Yeah, maybe. Well, if I were to do it, I got the title for my book, but that's pretty much it. And that is, uh, it would be called "Facing Your Greatest Enemy," mm. ah. which obviously is yourself. Yeah. Wonderful book titles. Now, of course, Ryan, you're talking about writing to your 18-year-old self, and he'll be. No, no, I'm not. I'm not. That You're was what I was thinking. That answer. was what I was thinking about everything, but now it's a niche. I so see. It's more the way of the open hand. I see. Mm. Okay. I was just going to remark that, of course, Ron, you are 18. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and so. Doesn't feel like it, though. Yeah. Yeah. I, yeah. I can imagine. And um, so you might have to think differently. <laughs> <laughs> Send a book to your eight year old self. <laughs> Uh, I'm just going to imagine and I'm writing a book for a patient. Ah, sorry, I got the the end of that, Ron, that you're writing a book for a patient. Uh, I said, I'm just going to pretend I'm a psychologist and I'm ah. writing a book to a patient. Ah. Because, like, you know, although this, like, what I would want to write about does translate into everything we're talking about, mm. I kind of want it to be, like, a self-help book in a way, something mm -hmm. that uses psychology philosophy like things that we know as like ground points to be able to help someone change themselves yeah because you know at, at the end of the day most people aren't interested in the dharma or meditation or stuff like that but everyone 
is interested in being the best version of themselves. And some of the practices that we talk about can help towards that. They can. Have you, have you read Carl Rogers? No, I haven't. Uh, yeah, he, I think he recently, uh, I, I can't be sure. Uh, look him up. He was a humanist and um, his work is very similar to uh, Buddha's, some of Buddha's teachings. What was his name? Carl Rogers. Kyle, I think he like spoke about unconditional positive regard. No? Yes, he, he did. Unconditional positive regard. Um, I'm looking up Kyle Rogers and I see an ice hockey player. I think, <laughs> I think Carl. C-A-R-L, Carl. Oh, Carl. Another, another positive Mr. Rogers. Yeah, yeah. Carl Rogers on free will. <laughs> All right. <laughs> But, you know, I, like, I think this kind of gets to what I, I wanted to comment about your uh, thing before, Ron, where you were talking about uh, talking to other people about the Dharma. And, like, my personal feeling is, like, as long as you're spreading joy and happiness, that especially, like, now with, you know, you just look at the statistics of depression and stuff and, you know, you just see people's faces. I, I mean, it's, it's almost like you can't go wrong. Of course, if you start spewing, spewing off about like, you know, all, all these like uh, sort of intellectual subjects, it can be a bit much. But like, if you're spreading joy. It just, it can't go wrong, really, because it's so needed. You know, and I mean, I, I, well, I need yes, it. And, you uh, need it. We all, we all need it. You know. Yeah, and I, I, I feel like the, the way, way to do it. Oh, sorry. No, so, sorry, Ron. Yeah, I feel that the way to do it is is instead of trying to be evangelical and show them something, is to solve a certain problem for them. Exactly. Because when I there's feel someone like... who's saying, man, I can't exercise every day, and then you need to tell them, yeah, maybe you need to be outcome independent about it. And Because I, I just feel like the problem is if you become someone's source of conditional joy you know if you become that condition they kind of tend to see you as a means to an end which you know goes back to the, the cycle that's of attachment true. that's true but a lot but a lot of people need a starting point you know yeah. like yeah, they need a fair. jumping off point you know and i feel that i've got absolutely no no problem being people's uh, source of joy do you have to rick is that no, already? no. It was just a. It was just a quick like. I do that with uh, so many of those Koreans. Like yeah. uh, they're so stressed out, and I call them and ask them genuine questions, and yeah. you know, ask them really how they're doing, and you know, how where where they're getting uh, their their release, how they're venting, how they're de-stressing. You know, these type of you know just gentle questions and. Then they'll sometimes ask me, well, what about you? And then I'll say, well, here's what I do. And I go, oh, that sounds interesting. So it's it's not a it's not an ulterior leading question. It's more, like you said, trying to spread my own. I wouldn't, for me, it's not really joy. It's more calmness. Calmness kind of into joy. Like, lo, like low-key joy. <laughs> 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 and humor, as usual. It's in humor. Like, but yeah, I, 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 yeah, yeah. Yeah, I'm done. I was just going to say, you know, I have no problem being someone's source of joy, but 
what I would much rather is being the reason that they're able to find it for themselves. Yeah. Um, of course. Yeah, so th that would be the difference between solving a problem for someone and teaching them helping, someone, helping someone to solve the pro problem like together, like a teamwork, mm. instead of spoon feeding them. Yeah, that's that's where therapy is coming to right now, which is amazing. Which mm -hmm. means get rid of the hierarchy, the dependent, and everything. And yeah, just more autonomy. It's it's the thing about Confucius about fishing, no? Giving a man a fish and teaching him how to fish. Uh, I haven't heard that one. Yeah, it's a famous proverb. Yeah, uh, give a man a fish, he'll eat for a day. Teach a man to fish, he'll eat for a lifetime. Oh, yeah, mm. good one. Mm. A real good one. Or a woman. Oh, so Ron. Woman. I'm going to encourage you to start NaNoWriMo. You still can. You just be one day behind the curve. What was that? I'm encouraging you to start National November Writing Month today. You just be a day behind the curve. All right. For you, Ryan, anything. There you go. That's it. Yes. <laughs> I've just done my work yesterday. Way. I was busy this morning doing something else, so I'm going to do my... 1,500 words after this call. No, I mean, I woke up really late today. My, my sleep schedule is kind of all over the place because of this weekend, so I could probably just, you know, stay up all night and bang a few pages out. <laughs> yeah, but, but but I think the key is to just to do a little bit at a time, a little bit every day, instead of getting... I don't fun. know. For me, it's actually quite the opposite. It's, it's, you know, once I get the feeling for it, I'm on a roll. I could bang out, like, 10 pages in one sitting. Okay. I mean, what I've usually seen is is when I bang out a lot, then I then then it's not consistent, and it's about little things every day. But just see if it works out for you. If it works out for you, if it works out for you. I mean, I yeah. Mean, I mean, I'm gonna be here next week. I'm sure you will be too. We can uh, we can update each other on how it's going. Let's yeah, yeah. Happens, maybe happy notes. days. Happy days. <laughs> Amazing. And That's I'm gonna great. tell someone else about. Have you heard about Ryan uh, and Ron? Like th these are brilliant authors. You should read their books. No, I'm. <laughs> yeah, that's what I said. Ron and Ryan, both of your books. I'm gonna re recommend someone later, maybe in future. <laughs> You'll see in the future. That's it. <laughs> <laughs> and it goes full circle. Yeah, who knows? Maybe I'll end up being a famous author. Who knows? This is how it starts, you know? Yeah. Yeah, every every great book started with a conversation probably quite like this one. Yeah. Now, with you guys behind me. <laughs> Anything's possible, Ron, and we'll just take a small cut of 95%. <laughs> 95? That's yeah, too low. Come on. I'm a generous man. I'll give you 99 <laughs> Deal. <laughs> All right, ninety nine point five, but I'm not going any lower than that. <laughs> Mama taught me how to bargain. <laughs> so these are self help books that you guys are treading down this path, and would would the would the yeah. poly canon be self extraction books? 
Well, I mean, I feel like in one way or another, pretty much every book is a self-help book. You know, whether it's fictional or not, it's it teaches you something, whether it's about yourself or about the world around you that helps you operate better. Sometimes it's a little more discreet and you get caught up in the details, but I feel like any any piece of literature written, whether fiction or nonfiction, whatever category it's in, can benefit someone or anyone in some type of way. It sure can. I think that um, there's the interpretation and the intention of the mm. reader yeah. in the mix, right? The ability to seek out lessons from not just a book, from anything. Really. Anything, honestly. Yeah. Even movies, like even children's yeah. movies, seemingly. Oh, with... man, the kids' movies are full of dharma. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, I know. Oh, incredible, right? You go like back the to those adventures of, like the adventures of Shark Boy and Lava Girl. Oh, la, la. <laughs> Sorry, Ron. The Adventures of Shark Boy and Lava Girl. Oh, la, la. oh, I've not seen that one. Really? Yeah, not seen that one. That's it's really it's a really cool movie because you know it's, it's kind of like based around the concept of like the power of your mind, like how you fabricate your own reality. Okay. In a way. Okay. I just, there we are. Yeah. I really liked it. Yeah. Fertile ground. And then the Avatar. Um, the oh. writers are always looking to get a lot of morals in there, right? And if they yeah. do well, we're we're in Dharma Town. No, but I really I really like the show, like the Avatar, because of like all the subliminal messaging that it has in that show. Avatar. Yeah. The last airbender, is it? Yeah, the last airbender. Oh, that yeah. one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. I've never Great seen it. Show. I used to watch it. It's yeah. like brilliant. Yeah. Okay. It gives you a lot of insight about how um about territorialism, socialization, mm-hmm. and just loads of things. I can't remember, but yeah, those are some really good stuff. I like yeah, the movie Inside Out. Have you have mm-hmm. has anybody watched it? Mm-hmm. That was really nice. Yeah, I loved it. Yeah. Yeah, Pixar uh, uh, generally. That was a Pixar, wasn't it? I think so, yeah. Yeah. Oh, oh yeah, I saw, I saw that one. Yeah. 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 This, I'm going to send a link to, to a video. You make eating veggies so easy. Whoa. Interrupt this Tuesday evening's call to bring you this quick commercial break. (laughs) (laughs) What we'll have, uh, we'll have I didn't hear that, Dan. I said, we'll have whoever owns that advert monetizing, (laughs) making a copyright claim, and monetizing this call when it goes up on YouTube now, based on their waveform recognition. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure. That'll be, uh, yeah. <laughs> While the monks are out on Vindabat. <laughs> <laughs> Meanwhile, Nestle is raking it in on advertising dollars <laughs> from the Dharma calls. <laughs> 
maybe, maybe. Can you guys hear me? That would be. That would, be <laughs> right. Right. that would fit pretty well. Yeah. You had an advertisement playing, so. Yeah, no, I was uh, I was finding this video on YouTube for you guys. I just sent the link in the chat. Thanks, so it's like a little excerpt from one of the episodes of Avatar. It's where he's like talking to a guru and he like helps him open up his seven chakras. Mm-hmm. And it it may not be that video because I think they've seen that it, it, it explains the chakras much better than anywhere else. Yeah, no. Ah. So I sent the link in the chat. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it's a really short video. It's only 10 minutes, but, you know, I just feel like whether or not it is the most accurate thing, it, it's still so crazy to to be able to see something like this in a, in a children's show out of all places. Mm-hmm. You know, when you look at some other children's shows, like, you know, let's say Tom and Jerry, where, where they show like scenes of like suicide and they show guns and smoking and drinking and all that stuff. Yeah. Did you watch hey, this as a okay. kid? Huh? Did you watch this as a kid? Yeah. Oh, okay. And then, you know, I, I came back and I also watched it as a young adult. Because <laughs> they had it on Netflix. Oh, okay. Delightful. Well, guys, I'm going to call it a night. The, uh, the clocks have changed here, as I made you aware. And so that makes late feel even later. Hence time for bed pretty soon i think great to catch up with you all yeah this is really great thanks everybody yeah it's always fun great to see you guys again yeah yeah likewise joe great to have you on board yeah nice to meet everybody yeah thanks thanks for having me three calls total that happen weekly and of course you're welcome to attend all of them but uh this is this this call happens at 8 p.m london time every tuesday great look forward to seeing you again yeah, we'll see you guys again. <laughs> Great to see you all, guys. Bye. Bye. Great to see you. Bye. Bye, Bye everyone. Bye.